The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. The Historian. Four. Impending Revolt Why was the Syad's first order of business creating and implementing a primitive version of APEP here on Earth? Memra, the beloved Emi founder of the Syad, had insisted that an APEP of our own would be the first step in staving off human extinction. Consider how little we actually know about APEP. According to Emi History and Mythology, APEP is the name of a biomechanical system that acts as a connective network for all Emi technology, making possible the exchange of data and information from one system to another on a planet-wide level. On Earth, we had foreseen the possibility of networked computers to the same ends, but had yet to crack the question of how. In the late 1960s, a group of American scientists conceived of a proto-network called the ARPANET, which was, for all intents and purposes, little more than a means by which the enormous mainframe computers of yesteryear might actually share their substantial processing power with other such mainframes. Meanwhile, across the pond, British scientists at the National Physical Laboratory were working out the means by which data is disassembled on one computer sails through a network to be then reassembled in another computer on the receiving end. Now that computers could talk to one another, the next dilemma to be resolved was the fact that respective networks could gab amongst themselves all day, but had no means by which to talk to other networks. It wasn't until 1972 that network users became capable of sharing electronic correspondence, called 
email, and in 1975, multiple networks were communicating with one another. In 1976, we were mostly using this newly chatty community of networks, called the Internet, to send and receive emails. Sharing of information was exclusively text-based and visually simplistic, to say the least. But in the early 1980s, the English computer scientist Timothy Berners-Lee began developing a means by which the European Organization for Nuclear Research, called CERN, might better share their information with clarity and ease. Of course, it's no secret that Berners-Lee became the first human employed by the SIAD. The progress Berners-Lee had made by 1980 was given a cosmic upgrade by the newly formed SIAD, and building upon the human infrastructures already established, the EMI employed a rudimentary interpretation of the principles that power APEP, at least to the degree that Earth could handle them. In another few years, the Internet moved from the private rooms of sophisticated labs and into the homes of ordinary citizens. As phone companies invested in the idea of digital communication, email became readily accessible to the masses, and the concept of networked information via personal computers became as commonplace as cordless phones. Of course, the crown jewel of what Timothy Berners-Lee called the World Wide Web was NARS the network-assisted record of self, the world's first social network. Thanks to NARS, human beings all over the world could share complex information, text, photographs, even music and video, via user-friendly interfaces called browsers. By uploading personal information to the Internet, it is widely held that humanity becomes more interconnected than ever before that the sharing and resourcing of knowledge and information becomes a greater reality, and that our mounting awareness of other humans will combat our inherent tendencies toward narcissism and xenophobia, replacing them with empathy. In the early 80s, SIAD began incorporating NARS in readily available government assistance programs. So great was the EMI emphasis on the use of NARS that just about anyone could fill out simple paperwork meet with a caseworker, and be issued a very basic modem with a NARS-ready personal computer. A bright new dawn awaited the Earth of the 80s. Of course, in 1987, NARS has become less a platform for humanitarian awareness and more of a means for already self-obsessed Earthlings to obsess over themselves to a degree we never thought possible. With NARS, humans accomplish this under the guise of progress, and they do so over the Internet. Use of the NARS quickly bred limitless subcultures and isolated havens of depravity. Every Generation X kid with access to a computer is able to retreat into their own delusions of grandeur with enough digital assistance to last a lifetime. Or, if they'd rather, play more video games, view pornography, or chat with drug dealers and pedophiles. Mounting apprehension with NARS worked its way from largely ignored conservative groups of the early 80s and into the conversations of sociologists worldwide. According to the SIAD, Earth's Internet could, in theory, reach APEP at some point in the next few decades, assuming the slow drip of EMI technology into Earth's delicate water balloon receptacle doesn't result in the great pop. So, researchers began to wander. On the road from World Wide Web to APEP, is some level of social downfall inevitable? 
After all, the communicative and technological possibilities unlocked by the EMI's rapid development of our primitive computer networks have yielded results undeniably fortuitous for mankind. According to a study conducted in 1986, authentic addiction to NARS is now a real-life diagnosable disorder. The expeditious updating of information, new posts, new messages, new smiles, via the NARS interface is believed to activate the neurotransmission of dopamine, the very chemical responsible for feelings of love and compassion. Human beings love this social network. And since the dopamine fix offered by NARS is faster, simpler, and easier to acquire than, say, a similar chemical reaction by way of human interaction or the arts, most humans have no problem rushing to the arms of NARS rather than a loved one, a novel, or Mozart. These same chemically dependent internet users inflate their addiction with a false sense of purpose, i.e., they claim to use the NARS to contribute to society in some way as if self-portraits and a carefully curated but wholly inauthentic presentation of their lives were humanitarian work. Scientists once assumed that addiction was created by simple exposure to addictive agents. The thinking went, allow someone to take heroin a few times and they will become addicted to heroin. But in the late 70s, Canadian psychologist Bruce K. Alexander put this mode of thinking to the test with his famous Rat Park experiments. In it, Dr. Alexander challenged typical studies on addiction conducted by offering a rat water laced with morphine alongside plain drinking water. In every typical study, the rat in question chugged dope water until he was addicted and eventually dead. Scientists thus concluded that the availability and use of drugs create addiction and all of its subsequent fallout. But in Rat Park, Bruce Alexander wondered if the same results could be produced in a radically different setting. Rather than isolating a single rat in a cold, sterile cage, Alexander created a luxurious rat fun world 200 times the floor area of a standard laboratory cage. Rat Park was populated with all manner of rats, as well as comfortable places to sleep, play, and have rat sex. And in Rat Park, there were two water sources, one laced with morphine and one laced with nothing. What Alexander discovered is that in Rat Park, very few rats ever sampled the dope water. None of the rats used the dope water compulsively, and not a single rat overdosed. Rat Park seemed to demonstrate that exposure to, and even use of, addictive substances did not create addiction in and of themselves. Instead, the cages our subjects are placed in create the necessary conditions for addiction to occur. Many life forms possess the innate need to bond and connect with other life forms. When said life forms are healthy and given the ability to bond and connect with other life forms around them, they will do so. If life forms are cut off or distracted from their ability to bond with other life forms, they seek to bond with something that promises a reprieve from the pain created by lack of bonding. And on the cycle goes. All along, the Emi reminded us that not unlike evil resulting from free will, some level of social decline is expected in the face of progress, conveniently sidestepping the question of digital addiction. 
Addiction to the very thing by which progress is allegedly achieved. Bear in mind that creating a NARS account involves more than merely posting self-portraits and bragging about your make-believe awesomeness. Each NARS account requires personal information fed directly to the SIAD, not to mention the steady feed of voluntary updates that follow via each NARS profile. Every member of the network-assisted record of self receives regular, required reading from the SIAD, delivered directly to your inbox, suspending account activity until opened and archived. These bulletins range from simple updates on NARS functionality, to lengthy and cryptic pieces on progressive EMI ideology, stuff any thinking person could easily classify as propaganda. A message arrives, and you have to open it before using NARS for anything else. You have to scroll through the whole thing, and you have to confirm your understanding of the message by clicking an icon that communicates as much. Of course, very few people outside of the conspiracy theorists and elderly users paranoid about their identity being stolen actually read these things, but they're being exposed to them for a brief period one way or another. I want you to think about everything I've mentioned in my previous three posts. The mystery surrounding the arrival of alien life on Earth, the smokescreen that shrouds this arrival in inexplicable deceit, and the lingering question of the Emi's origin, as well as their future goals. Now, I want you to think about NARS, the very means by which these messages appear on your computer screen. The EMI have all but guaranteed worldwide use of their very own information hub, asking for access to our personal records, homes, and even our psychological profiles via our NARS accounts. We now know that human beings are developing chemical addiction to the means by which the EMI disseminate their information and absorb ours. We not only agree to this, we line up for it. By nature of our utterly unprecedented circumstances, things are moving at such an outrageous pace that very few have had even a single moment to draw their head out of the information flood and ask, hey, what the hell is going on here? Any attempt at reasonable inquiry is clouded by the easily dismissed voices of the paranoid and delusional. The Emi are actually gods. The Emi are the Antichrist. The Emi have the Ark of the Covenant. At the rate we're exchanging information and the number of voices that have been given a platform, for better or for worse, very few ideas that may challenge the status quo can find their bearings in a virtual tsunami of data and communication. It is for these reasons that, over the last few years, I began to seek answers, not by engaging the rules of the very machine that enslaves us, but by stepping out and subversively working against the machine from the inside. I have collected several years' worth of information that will change the world forever, and I have conceived of a plan to do exactly that, to save the human race and to expose the alien threat hiding in plain sight. Their task is simple. Enslave the lesser life forms. Absorb them into APAP. Take what they do not deserve away from them. Now that I have initiated this final correspondence, time will be limited, as well as the means by which our dangerous mission might be carried out. Make no mistake, 
The road ahead is a frightening one to bring Memrod down from his seat of power and to overthrow the lizard people. I need your help, Danny Thomas. The Historian, November 19th, 1987. In order to ensure proliferation of the word virus, you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word 